Imagine if Shalom, a young boy was diagnosed with leukemia and the only hope for survival is to find a bone marrow match. Out of millions of donors, you were the lucky one who was a perfect match and saved the young boy's life. According to the law, you and the recipient cannot know each other's identity for at least a year. After a year, you find out each other's identity and you meet face to face. Words cannot express the overflowing gratitude that the recipient and his family showed you for saving their child's life. Well, the truth is that I, Baruch Hashem, was a witness to such an experience. When Ezemit Sion ran a blood donor drive a few years ago in Yerushalayim for possible bone marrow matches, my son Moishi had volunteered with the wishful thinking of maybe I'll be Zeicha to be a donor. About two years ago, he got that long for a call telling him that he may be possible, he may be a possible match and he should come for further testing. Then about a year and a half ago, he donated his bone marrow, which was given to a young leukemia patient. Baruch Hashem, the transfusion was successful and after a year, the recipient contacted my son and eventually they met in California. The young boy was a Lubavitcher named Yosef Eliezri from Yerba Linda, California. When my son came, they had a tearful and emotional reunion. There was also a special meal to thank Hashem called the Suda Soda. As an Eden Hashkacha protest, the father of David Eliezri spoke at the Suda Soda and said over one of the only things that he found on the internet about Suda Soda. He quoted a rabbi in Israel who made a Suda Soda and had posted his words on the internet. He said that the rabbi was none other than Shlomo Price, the father of Moishi who saved my son's life. I had made a pseudo-sodor a few years ago after my open-heart surgery and posted it on the Neve website. The crowd was left open-mouthed at this amazing hashkocha. The parents also came to Eric Israel and met with us. They were overflowing with gratitude to Moishi and us for donating the bone marrow and saving their son's life. They told us over the gripping story of Yosef's fight for life. I'll just tell you two points that they said that made a tremendous impact on me. First of all, after waking up after nine days of unconsciousness, Yosef's first two questions were, how many days have I been sleeping? After being told that it was nine days, he said, and how many days have I not put on to fill in? I realized that when we finally wake up from our Yetzirah-imposed unconsciousness, we should ask the same two questions. His mother also mentioned that throughout his long and painful ordeal, he never asked, why me? He never said that he doesn't believe in Hashem. On the contrary, his faith was so strong. One time when he was very, very sick and very weak, his mother asked him if he could figure all this out. What is Hashem doing? Yosef looked at his mother and said quietly, it's not for us to question what Hashem is doing. Do you think Hashem was sleeping when six million Jews died? Hashem has a plan. Coming from one who's fighting from his life, this Sicha and Amunah speak, speaks volumes. We should learn to have such Amunah in our own daily living, which is not exactly fighting for our lives. Seeing how overflowing these people were with their gratitude and appreciation made me reflect. My son had this chutz of giving bone marrow and saving the young fellow's life. And look at the overflow of gratitude. So how much more so should we be grateful to HaKadosh Baruch Hu? who constantly gives us every breath of life. In fact, 
even when we don't deserve it, even in the midst of doing what we know that Hashem doesn't want us to do, Hashem in His infinite mercy continues to give us life. How overflowing with gratitude should we be? How can we be so ungrateful and not get up and thank Hashem in the dominating and try our utmost to keep His Torah and mitzvahs? On Rosh Hashanah, we're going to ask Hashem for another year of life. I want to start off with a parable that I read in a book called Let's Face It by Repetency Porehella that can help us crystallize how our approach to life should be. She tells about how track star Gary Fox was training for the Summer Olympics. Gary chose a three-mile course through country roads in Tennessee despite the 90-degree heat. Halfway up the steepest incline, a fancy air-conditioned Cadillac offers him a lift. Gary politely refuses. The driver tries again and explains it's just too hot to run in this weather. Gary refuses despite the fact that the driver insists that Gary must be crazy. Somewhere along the route, Gary had put hurdles to practice jumping over them. When the driver came to the first hurdle, he moved it away from Gary's path and he told him, now at least this won't be in your way. Gary, frustrated and angry, shouts, I wanted the hurdle there so I could jump over it. Rebetzin Heller explains the parable illustrates two approaches to life. Most people, like the Cadillac driver, deem it crucial that wherever they're going, they get there in comfort. Even people who are unclear about their goal measure the success of their day, week, or life according to how smoothly it ran how few obstacles they encountered, and how much contentment they enjoyed. Rare people, like the Olympic trainee, care less about the ease of the journey than about who they become in the process. Their goal is to be great in some field, therefore they relish difficulties, because they appreciate the growth that results from tackling obstacles. Whether it's an athlete building his muscles and endurance, or an artist perfecting her skill, or a political dissident honing his powers of resistance. They are aware that greatness results from challenge. All people come into this world to become great human beings. Therefore, the Creator provides them the exact number and type of challenges necessary to develop that greatness. Just as every cell in the body is purposeful, so too every hurdle we encounter is purposeful. Its purpose is to jump over it. When we consider our reaction to our own tribulations, it is crucial to view them in the context of who we truly are and what we hope to accomplish. If we would see ourselves as human beings in training, we too might decline that ride in the air-conditioned Cadillac. According to the Medrash, when a soul after the death of the body enters the world of souls, it sees its entire life in a panorama. Its only complaint is that it wasn't given more challenges. Now, Avram Tversky, in his book, Let Us Make Man, similarly explains the purpose of man. He points out that Hashem created all else in this universe without asking for assistance. Yet when it came to the creation of man, Hashem says, Let us make man. Why is the creation of man different that it seems as if HaKadosh Baruch was asking for assistance? and whose participation is being requested, and just who is Hashem addressing when He says, let us. 
Rabbi Tversky explained that there are three different categories in Hashem's creations. There's angels, animals, and man. Angels are only spirit without any body. Animals are pure animal without any spirit. Yet, they share two common characteristics, unlike man who is different. The first characteristic is that both of them, both angels and animals, are created in an essentially complete state. Angels don't grow in any fashion, and animals only grow in size and strength, but not in character. Although the caterpillar, the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, and the tadpole becomes a frog, these changes are automatic, and are not brought about by the animal's effort, nor can the animal stop them from happening. Man is different. The human infant not only grows in size and strength, but must undergo a process of maturation so that the adult is much more than a grown-up baby. This maturation might, must occur through the individual's own efforts. There may be a great deal of input into the process by parents, teachers, and significant others, but ultimately the person is responsible for his own maturation. The final product, mature man, was the goal of Hashem's creation. But it was Hashem's will that man achieved this maturation by his own efforts, and that he strived toward perfection by his own means. Hashem therefore addressed this newly fashioned lump of clay, which was to be man, and he said, let us make man. You and I together will make man. I will give you the capacities and the potential, and I will assist you in the process. But the work must ultimately be your own. I could create many beings that are perfect from the very beginning, but that is not my concept of man. We can therefore understand why the Gemara often refers to a person who lives a Torah life as being a partner to Hashem in the work of creation. Ultimate man requires a partnership between man and Hashem. Ultimate man, according to divine plan, can only be with man's participation in his own creation. The second characteristic that angels and animals share, unlike man, is that they are not free to choose and determine their own behavior. Angels are emissaries of Hashem who must do as they are ordered and have no free will of their own. Animals are completely under the domination of their internal drives. An animal won't think, well, although I'm hungry and thirsty, I've decided not to eat or drink today. The only forces that can stop an animal from pursuing the gratification of its internal drives are physical barriers that it cannot overcome or the threat of physical punishment. If a hungry jackal sees a carcass in the possession of a lion, it will not risk being harmed. Thus, essentially, an animal is compelled to satisfy its drives, and it is thus a slave to its passions. Man, however, was intended to be free, to choose and determine his own actions. If a person avoids a given act only because it might result in distress, whether it's financial penalty, physical pain, imprisonment, or social disapproval, he's essentially functioning on an animal level, since animals, too, will forego gratification in order to avoid punishment. Man is truly free only when he chooses his actions and determines his behavior according to what he believes to be morally right or wrong, without regard to any discomfort that might result from his behavior. Intellect is the ability to acquire knowledge, to understand what one has learned, and to know how to apply this knowledge. 
One can have all these and still be under the domination of one's internal drives. Spirituality is the development of control over oneself. To be able to use one's body as a means toward the transcendental goal. It is not man's intellect alone which distinguishes him from other forms of life, but rather his spirituality, his ability to become master of his own person, a mastery which he achieves by his own efforts. In accomplishing this, man becomes the being that Hashem had intended. Working toward the achievement of the ultimate goal for which man was created plays a pivotal role in developing one's self-esteem. There's a beautiful story of Shalom Shadron that also explains how we should look at the challenges and tests of life. This is taken from the Hebrew biography on Rav Shalom called Kol Chotzev. Rav Shalom was, given a nightly, was giving a nightly share to some students. There was a certain student who was a regular, but he had missed the last three nights. Rav Shalom went to visit him at his home to see if he's okay. When he got there, the student informed Rav Shalom everyone was all right, but for some side problem, he won't make it this week. But don't worry, next week he'll be back as usual. When Rav Shalom inquired as to the problem, the student answered, Rebbe, it's hard for me to say. I'm embarrassed. Rav Shalom said, why are you embarrassed? You can tell me. I won't be angry at you. The student said, Rebbe, it's not for the Rebbe to hear. But don't worry, I'll be back next week. Rav Shalom said, no, tell me in short, unless it's something personal. What's happening special this week and not next? It sounds very interesting. The student obliged Rav Shalom and said, I'll tell you the truth. This week is the main soccer tournament, and the hours of the game clash with the nightly shear. I'm addicted to the game. I love the game and its heroes with all of my heart. I cannot forego the game to come to the shear. Reb Shalom was silent for a moment, and then he picked up his loving eyes that flowed with great and wise divine assistance and said, Okay, I hear and I understand. But I'm very interested in finding the secret of the joy of this sport. I would be very happy to hear how you play this game. The fellow explained the game to Rav Shalom and stressed that when one is able to kick the ball into the goal, that is the zenith of joy. Rav Shalom made a face as if he didn't understand. He said, what's the big deal? To kick a ball into a goal? Come with me. I'll show you. I can kick 20 balls into the goal as fast as lightning. The fellow smiled. Rebbe. I forgot to tell you the main thing. There's a goalie by the goal who's trying to stop the ball from going in. The trick is to get it in and outsmart the goalie. And how indeed does one outsmart the goalie? Ah, Rebbe, that's the whole beauty and joy of the game. The one who's capable of outsmarting the goalie is the happiest person around. Rav Shalom said, I still don't understand. The goalie is in front of the goal 24 hours a day? He eats there and he sleeps there? Of course not, laughed the fellow. He's only there during the game. Afterwards, he goes back to his daily living. If that's the case, if Shalom asked, so what's the problem? Let's go to the goal at night when the goalie's not there. Then you'll be able to kick in as many goals as you want. The fellow raised his voice and said, Rebbe, when the goalie's not there and there's no opposition, then there's no great achievement in kicking the ball in. The great wisdom and strength is only when it's hard, when there are people trying to prevent you from kicking it in. 
and then you succeed. That's the real achievement. Rav Shalom stood up and looked at the fellow and said loudly, Let your ears hear what your own mouth is saying. Do you think that coming to the Shear next week is a big achievement? You want to learn next week and you have nothing stopping you from coming. That won't be anything special. The great achievement in wisdom will be when there's a goalie standing by the door of the base medrash trying to stop you from entering. And you kick the ball in and you come in. That is the epitome of joy and achievement. Yes, yes, the fellow said. According to the pain is the reward. And he understood the depth and wisdom of Rab Sholem's words. But Rebbe, uh, I'm different. Don't break the rules of the game. Come to the goal of the base marriage when it's hard. And that will be the biggest joy, Rav Sholem said smilingly. He then gave the fellow a hearty handshake and left. The following night, the fellow showed up for this year. Based on these crystallizations of light, we can have a deeper and more spiritual meaning when we ask for another year of life. This year I was privileged to speak at the Neve Dinner in the United States, and I really wanted to say a few stories to summarize my 31 years Billy Ayanara at Neve, but I was warned that I only had four minutes, so I opted for a much shorter speech. Now that it's close to Rosh Hashanah, I decided I could use these stories to help us prepare for Rosh Hashanah. I realize that I've used these stories in other sikhot already, but since the Rosh Hashanah sikha is on tape or disc, and it reaches a much larger audience, I decided to add these all-time favorites, which will hopefully be an inspiration. In my 31 years at Neve, I realized that one of the biggest challenges of our generation is the lack of self-esteem. I want to relate two stories that deal with this challenge, and there's also a glimpse of what we try to do at Neve. The first one is a poem called The Touch of the Master's Hand by Myra Welch. It's about an auctioneer who's having a hard time auctioning off an old battered and dusty violin until an amazing thing happened that changed it completely. It goes like this. It was battered and scarred and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin. But he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried, who will start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two. Who's going to make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. It was just about to be sold for only three dollars, because people were judging its value by its rough exterior. But then something happened that changed it drastically. From the room far back came a gray-haired man. He came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as the hymning angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for this old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, and who will make it two? Two thousand, and who will make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice. And going and gone, said he, the people cheer, but some of them cried. We do not quite understand. What change it's worth? Swift came the reply. It was the touch of the master's hand. This is the first half of the poem that teaches us an important lesson of life. Sometimes you need a master to show everyone the real potential that may be lying dormant within. 
Now she applies it to all of us. And many a man with his life on a tomb and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage and a glass of wine and a game and he travels on. He's going once and he's going twice. He's going and he's almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. The master, of course, is Hashem Yisbarach and any one of his agents. It could be a parent, a rebbe, a family member, a friend, an inspirational story or an event that show us, as well as everyone else, our true potential. The only thing that I would add is that she writes that we're auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, while many of us are auctioned cheap to ourselves. This poem has always inspired me, but after I read a little about the challenges that this authoress had to overcome to make the poem, it made a deeper impression on me. She was in a wheelchair, battered and scarred from severe arthritis, which had taken away her ability to make music. She took one pencil in each of her badly disabled hands, and using, using the eraser end, she would slowly type the words, the joy of them outweighing the pain of her efforts. Her words were a joyous expression of the wonders of life, as seen by a singing soul touched by the Master's hand. There's a beautiful point I say over from Ramosha Feinstein's Zechatayach Labrocha, which elucidates this point. It is a very important foundation to learn how to live a happier life and to have self-esteem. Rashi in Vaera points out that sometimes Aaron's name appears before Moshe and sometimes the opposite. This is to teach us that they were equal. Ramosha Zatzal asked, how can this be? Moshe was the master of all the prophets. The Torah was given through Moshe. How can we say that Aaron was equal? In one of his answers, he explains, since Aaron completely fulfilled all of the will of Hashem that he was capable of doing, he is equal to Moshe. Even though Moshe was greater in capability, and that's why Moshe was given more significant tasks to perform, nevertheless, since they both used their individual capability to its fullest potential, they are considered equal in level. Rabbi Khanna Wasserman Zatzal and Kaivitz Mamorim uses this point to explain the famous Rambam. The Rambam in Hilchus Tshuva, Perakei Halacha Gimel, says, Everyone can be righteous, a righteous person like Moshe Rabbeinu. Rabbi Wasserman asked, How can this be? The Torah tells us, Lo come to Moshe. No one was great as Moshe. We all know that even if we would work with all of our might for thousands of years, we would not even reach the ankles of Moshe Rabbeinu. So what did the Rambam mean? Rabbi Wasserman answers, we were not given the power and intellect of Moshe Rabbeinu. But because of this, we will not be lacking in value. The Rambam is saying that each person, according to his value and his potential, can use them completely to serve Hashem, and thereby he will be like Moshe Rabbeinu, who used all of his potential for Hashem. There's a beautiful story in the Sefer, Tuvach Yabiu from Rabbi Yitzhak Zilberstein, that underscores this point. Rav Dan Segar relates that once the stipler gone, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Kamhiyevsky Zatzal <coughs> was riding in a cab, and he asked the cab driver if he sets aside time to learn Torah after his hard day at work. 
the cab driver responded that truthfully he goes to a Gomorrah share at night, but he had to admit painfully that his strength fails him after such a hard day's work. He falls asleep right away over the Gemara and doesn't wake up till the shear is over. He proceeded to describe to the stipler how much it hurts him that he can't even stay awake and certainly that he can't understand the Gemara. The driver may have expected a tongue lashing from the stipler, but on the contrary, the stipler praised and encouraged him immensely. He said to the driver, you should know that truthfully on this world you don't feel that you have much worth. But I can faithfully guarantee you that in Shomayim, in heaven, you are looked upon as a great general because you are doing all that you can do, your full potential. More than this, you cannot do. Continue and continue to go to the Shear, even if you fall asleep on the Gemara, because in heaven they consider you a great Sadiq. <coughs> Abdan Sega proceeded to explain this cab driver truthfully did all that he was able to do. He had many children and was halakhically obligated to support them. And his job as a cab driver made him very tired. Consequently, all he was obligated to do was to go to the shear, even if he didn't understand anything and fell asleep. Further on in this Sefer Tuvachi Abiyu, he brings in the stipler Sefer Chaya Olam, where he writes, Hashem doesn't demand from a person more than his capability. Even the student who finds it hard to comprehend, who works and toils as much as he could, has fulfilled his quota, and is beloved by Hashem precisely as the great genius who has fulfilled his quota. In fact, in one aspect, he's even more beloved than the great genius who succeeds greatly in Torah. For to the great genius... His learning is great pleasure, whereas to the weak student, his learning is a sacrifice and a great burden, and despite this he learns. Hashem takes into consideration the effort and toil that you expended, more than the actual productivity. As it says at the end of the fifth parak in the fum tsara agra, according to the pain is the reward. Of course, one should not underestimate his potential. When it comes to Torah, the Yitzhahara tends to persuade us <clears throat> that we have a very limited potential. We have to learn that it's not always the lack of potential, rather it's the lack of will and desire. We don't realize how important the thing is. When you want to do something, then you can probably do a lot more than you think you can. Just work on this will to do it. Let us learn from the way we run after money. A certain fellow told me he couldn't get up a chakras at 7 a.m. because he had a weak nature. I met the same guy in the summer and he's getting up at 6 a.m. to be a truck driver. Many times, however, we don't even realize our own potential. And even worse, there are those, sometimes even people who are close to us, who insist that we have no potential. That is where the magic of Chinuch plays a role. We tend to translate Kinnach as education, training, and instruction. However, Rabbi Dov Brizak in his wonderful book, Kinnach in Turbulent Times, explains what Kinnach really means. Based on the Sefer Chobat HaTalmidim, he explained that Kinnach means developing the potential contained in a being or object and bringing it into fruition. In the case of people, it means to begin to develop in them those potential talents or abilities 
which lie dormant within them. And with regard to a Jewish child, chinuch means for the parents, teachers, or anyone else concerned to involve themselves in those behaviors and actions that will bring out the endless talents and abilities contained in the godly spirit lying dormant within the child, eventually causing his soul to flame with a love for Hashem and His Holy Torah. Based on this, he points out that included in Chinuch is also showing love for one's children and forging a close bond with them. I know that especially in our generation of children on the fringe or kids at risk, one of our heartfelt requests on Rosh Hashanah is for the successful Chinuch of our children. I just want to share with you some of the wise words of Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky Shlita, which may help us rethink our present priorities in life. In the Jewish Observer of March 2000, they asked Rav Kamenetsky the following question. Besides the explosive growth of the Yetzirah presence in the home, vividly conveying vulgar, immoral, illicit images via TV, video, and the internet, is there any explanation for the fact that the number of Haredi children on the fringe and beyond has exploded in the last several years, far more than anything Torah Jewry in America has experienced since World, since World War II? Jeff Kamenetsky responded, One need not go beyond the corrosive effects of the entertainment and the information media in search of a source for recent destructive trends. Even homes that do not harbor such media can suffer from the corrosive seepage from the general marketplace of ideas and values. Another factor, however, is also at work. The extraordinary emphasis on luxurious living that has engulfed our society. Among those who have already obtained their desired level of good living, many seem to become completely involved in self-indulgence in the trappings of affluence. Others who have not realized their dreams focus their hopes and their efforts on doing so. In either case, people are losing their sensitivity to spiritual matters, and their sensibilities are becoming dulled as they become immersed in material longings and pursuits. If such is the case, should we be shocked if the children go astray and abandon Torah life? If we would take Rav Kamenetsky's words to heart, then at the same time that we dub him for successful chinuch, we would also dub him for, success, for a successful understanding of our priorities. Many times people fail to look into the innermost depths of a person to realize and bring out the true potential. They rather mistakenly judge a person by his rough outside, and they assume that there's nothing inside to talk about. Sometimes even the person himself makes this mistake about his own true potential. I once heard a moving story from Avram Twersky, who was giving encouragement to a group of prisoners here in Israel. He was building up their self-esteem by telling them how great they were, and it was beneath their dignity to do the kind of things that will land them up in jail. After the speech, one of the prisoners named Avi came and told the rabbi he couldn't relate to the message. Avi explained he was in jail for many years, for stealing even small amounts. If he would ever get out of here, who would trust him to give him a job? they got to be crazy. Besides, just pray and pray for him every day that he should die. So how can he have self-esteem? But by Twersky told Avi an interesting analogy. He explained that we all know how valuable a diamond is, but let's consider what it looked like before it looked the way it does now. There are workers in a diamond mine who dig out these dirty, ugly-looking rocks. They would throw them away if not for the fact that there's an expert who examines the dirty rock. 
and he tells them, there's a beautiful diamond in there, don't throw this away. And when the worker doesn't believe it, he brings it back in a few weeks and he shows them the beautiful diamond that was hidden inside. Rabbi Tversky asked Avi, what magic ingredient did they add to turn that dirty rock into a diamond? And of course the answer is there's no magic ingredient. The diamond was always inside. It was just covered up with layers of mud and garbage. All you have to do is practice it and remove the surrounding dirt and automatically the diamond will shine through. Avi, don't tell me how much you're worth. We know better. We say every day in the morning in the davening, Hashem has blown into us a pure soul. It's a precious diamond. The problem is that we dirty it up by doing the things that we shouldn't be doing. If you will process it and get your act together, then automatically your diamond will shine through. Avi took these words to heart, and he went for therapy, and eventually he went to a halfway house. When he was released, he bought a van and went into the building business. He was asked by the secretary of the halfway house to please move some furniture to the halfway house. An elderly woman had left an inheritance for them. Avi agreed, but when he saw how dilapidated the furniture was, he tried to persuade the secretary it wasn't worth the effort. She explained that they already promised the children, and they would have to take it. She suggested that they bring it, and whatever they could salvage, they would. When Avi started moving the couch, an envelope fell out containing 10,000 shekel, over $2,000. Now here is a guy who was imprisoned for many years for stealing, even small sums. He is alone, and he really could use the money. He didn't take it. He called the secretary who spoke to the children. They decided to donate the money to the halfway house in memory of their mother. When Rabbi Tversky met Avi later, he told them, I know many respectable people who were never in prison for anything. Yet if they would have been in your situation, they wouldn't have thought twice about pocketing that money. Here you were in a prison many years for stealing. And now you made such a reversal that you give back money that maybe you could have kept. Didn't I tell you we'd find the diamond? The story ends that Avi went to the halfway house and he put up a sign, Merkaz Lelatishat Yahalomim, the center for polishing diamonds. The only thing I would point out is that there's one major difference between the diamond and the violin of the stories that I mentioned. They don't have free will. When the master comes to tune the violin and process the diamond, they can't object. We have free will. We have to be careful to allow those masters to show everyone, including ourselves, what we really are. In fact, it's possible that even one with less potential can far surpass one with greater potential, even in productivity. I saw once a story of a king who had three sons. He wanted to devise a contest to see who would be the next king. And he brought them into one of the rooms of his palace. He gave the oldest son a thousand dollars, the middle son five hundred, and the youngest son ten dollars. They were given a month to buy whatever they wanted, but only with the money that they were given. However, the challenge was that whatever they would buy had to fill up the room from the floor to the ceiling. The only one who could succeed, the only one who would succeed would be the next king. A month later they returned. The oldest son spent a thousand dollars on tons and tons of straw. He almost filled up the room, but when the last straw was placed, there was still space between it and the ceiling. The middle son also spent his $500 wisely. 
He bought wagon loads of feathers. In fact, he got further than the oldest son, but he still did not succeed in filling up the room. Finally, the third son came dancing in with a small bag. Everyone laughed and wondered, what in the world could he have in that bag for $10 that could fill up a room? He slowly took out 10 candles and matches, and he lit the candles, and the light of the candles filled up the room from the bottom to the top, and he became the next king. It was specifically the one with the least potential who came out on top. Realize your own value and self-esteem the way Hashem sees it, not by comparing yourself to others or the way others may look at it. I'm going to end off with a moving parable from the Chafetz Chaim that I saw in a safe on Pekayavis from the words of Rav Shalom Shadron Zechatan Vabracha. The Sefer is called Hu Hoya Omer. I recently got the Sefer as a present from one of the Tamidim who hoped that I would use something from it to spread to others. Well, his wish was granted. I have heard different versions to this parable, but I will tell it the way it is written in Shalom Sefer. In the sixth chapter of Pekayavis, it mentions that Rabbi Yotzi ben Kishma said, When a man departs from this world, Neither silver nor gold nor precious stones nor pearls escort him. Only Torah study and good deeds. Rav Shalom Zatzal brings that the Chavetz Chaim said this moving parable to help us understand the folly and the foolishness of running to gather worldly pleasures and goods as opposed to Torah and mitzvahs. A fellow traveled to a faraway land to make a living. After 15 years of hard work, he realized he had enough money and wanted to go back home. He made a simple calculation that instead of bringing home money, he would buy a commodity here that was scarce in his hometown and sell it in his hometown for an even greater profit. He remembered that in his hometown, candle made from animal fats was very expensive due to the rarity of the fats. But in this country where he was, fats were plentiful and cheap. So he bought a whole boatload of fats and was ready to embark on his trip home. Right before the boat, was, the boat was about to leave, a jewel merchant tried to persuade the fellow to buy a few gems. It seems that there was a vast supply of gems in this place, and therefore they were very cheap. The fellow did not want to be bothered with such trivialities, but the merchant persuaded the fellow to buy three gems for his wife for a few cents and the fellow put them in his pocket. The boat began its journey of many months to get to his home. In the duration, the fat started to rot and gave off a terrible smell, which permeated the whole ship. The sailors could not take the terrible smell, and they tried to ascertain its source. When they realized it was the fats, they threw them all into the sea. The fellow was left with nothing to show. For its 15 years of back-breaking labor. No money and no merchandise. He approached his destination in a terribly depressed mood. His family, who knew nothing of his loss, assumed he was coming home as a very wealthy man. They came to greet him at the port, and they were surprised at his quiet reaction. He barely said anything, and he looked so downcast. They attributed this to the difficulty of the trip. But very soon he would be back to normal. They made a homecoming party, but he still remained quiet. Everyone left, and he went into his room to sleep. 
His wife was very pained. She had hoped that her husband would return a happy man and they would now be successful. Instead, he was very depressed and apparently he came back empty-handed. All of a sudden, a thought entered her mind. Let me check his pockets. Maybe he brought something home after all. She found the three gems and went to a jeweler. The jeweler gasped when he saw them and he exclaimed, You're a millionaire's. You're millionaires. With these three gems, you can live with plenty all of your lives, you and your children and your grandchildren. When her husband woke up, she came over to him overjoyed. She said, now I understand that you wanted to keep these gems a secret. She told him what the jeweler said about the gems, expecting him to share her joy. Instead, to her astonishment, her husband burst out crying hysterically and bitterly. She asked him, why are you crying? You're a millionaire. He explained to her, what a fool I was. What kind of merchandise did I buy? I bought many crates of fats which eventually rotted and had to be thrown out. Instead of this worthless merchandise, I could have used my money to buy crates of gems like these and I could have supported the whole city. Oh, what a fool I was. Now his wife understood. If three gems were so valuable... Imagine how valuable crates of these gems would be. The Chavetz Chaim concluded with the penetrating moral. A person comes down to this world and works hard all of his life. Then when he leaves, he brings back whatever he brought here. And what did he buy? He bought beautiful furniture, expensive dishes. But what are they really worth in the world of truth? They aren't worth anything. They just give off a bad smell and have to be thrown out. All of a sudden, three angels come, which were created by his Torah and Mitzvah, and then things look better for him. At that moment, the person bursts out crying. Oh, what a fool I was. All of my life, I worked for these vanities that were thrown out. Instead of these, I could have amassed crates filled with Torah and Mitzvah, and there won't be anybody there to console him, because his crying is justified. How awesome this is. It is interesting to note that on the Shabbos right before Rosh Hashanah, we learn Pekayavis, which ends with the sixth chapter that has this Mishnah and its penetrating lesson in it. I think this is a sign that we must prepare ourselves with the perspective of life, with this perspective of life, in order to properly know what to ask for on Rosh Hashanah. May we internalize these lessons and lead our lives according to them, and in that merit, we should be zeicha to exceed the chasimah table.